You enjoying our, I'm going to quote my father here. Growing up, my father's thing was to always say, this is the last cold front of the year. <laughs> so uh, it might be. It might be. He was always right, just not every time. He, he did guess it. He did guess it, but he made a lot of guesses. Anyway, thanks for joining us here on site. Thank you for tuning in online. We greatly appreciate that. We love having you as a part of the Hammock Street community. So I want to start off today with a question. Do you get angry when things don't go the way you thought that they should go? Well, actually, let me rephrase that for you. I'm sure none of you, nobody here gets angry when things don't go the way that you thought they should go, but you probably know somebody, right? So this makes, makes it easier when you're not talking about yourself. You know somebody who gets angry when things don't go their way, right? Yeah, we all, we all know those people, don't we? Because there's no shortage of those people. There are a lot of angry people nowadays, a lot of angry people around us. In fact, it is endemic in our everybody has a voice, everybody has a platform, every opinion is equal world. People are going to get angry when people don't agree with them. And, and nowadays it's, it's virtually impossible to read or hear anything without encountering somebody who is really, really angry about it. Have you noticed that? In this moment, in this time in which we're living, every news story, every article, every editorial, even every video that we can read or see has a comment section. A comment section that allows everybody, people, to voice their opinions. And then when you see an opinion, that's always followed by more contrary opinions. And each contrary opinion, at least it seems to me, is angrier or nastier or snarkier than the previous one. And by the way, I'm not just talking about political opinions. Because actually, I really made this observation when I was reading angry opinions on a Christian site reading Christian articles or, or Christian posts. And I read these things throughout the week, and there's always somebody who's angry about whatever is said right there. And it pains me to admit that the anger and the nastiness and the snarkiness that I read in these self-proclaimed Christian sites is every bit as bad as, if not worse than, any of the anger or nastiness or snarkiness on television or Facebook or, or Twitter or Instagram or any other social media platform. It seems that the Christians have really perfected this art of being angry at other Christians. And what makes me sad about that is the fact that this anger and nastiness and snarkiness on the Christian sites is directed at each other. It's directed at other Christians. I don't see any love. I don't see any encouraging words. I don't see any edification or upbuilding. Just vilification. And it's sad. All I see is theological posturing and denominational posturing and, and bitterness and petty rivalries and scathing critique. It, it's interesting. Many people have commented that before we had this capability to just anonymously comment into the world, when we had to look at people that we were talking to and had to disagree with them, we did so in a lot better way. We are a bit more polite about it because it's really hard to be offensive when you're staring at somebody right there in the face when 
you could get punched if you say something horrible. Like, it's really tough, but behind a keyboard, it's very easy. And as I've been saying for years, I'm glad that I hadn't known many Christians before I became one because I'm not sure that I would have wanted to join the club if I had. I quoted me. I quoted myself there. <laughs> now, all this division exists in spite of the biblical appeal against it. Did you hear what I said? The Bible says don't do that. The Apostle Paul said to the believers in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1, I appeal to you, brothers, and you can, by the way, in this context, absolutely, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. We're called to be connected, not divided as God's people. The division of God's people, however, is not new. Its roots go all the way back to the days of Jesus' earthly ministry. Now, one of the most famous examples of this division in the fickle family of God took place during the week that we now know as Passion Week. What is Passion Week? Passion Week describes the period of time from Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday. Now, we get the word passion from the late Latin word passionum, which means suffering or enduring. So Passion Week is named that way because it's the week that would culminate in Jesus' suffering yet enduring the cross. So, Passion Week, you can read about in every one of the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's found in Matthew's chapter 21 through 27, in Mark chapters 11 through 15, in Luke chapters 19 to 23, and in John chapters 12 to 19. So you can find it throughout the Gospels. And Passion Week begins today with what day? What day is this? Palm Sunday, right? So if we were in a Catholic church, which you're not, in case you didn't know that, you're not in a Catholic church. Okay, so if you're in a Catholic church, you'd be getting a leaf today. All right, so that's how that works. We don't have leaves to, to hand out. But Palm Sunday starts off Passion Week, and biblically, Palm Sunday begins with what we call Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the account given to us by Mark's gospel. And as a heads up, just want you to know, today's message is a bit fact heavy. And I'm giving you a lot of facts today because I feel it's necessary to go through all of this stuff so we can understand how significant Palm Sunday is and Palm Sunday's significance as it relates to the passion of Jesus. So, what we're going to do today is first we're going to read through Mark's account of this situation, of this event. We're going to read through Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. In it, we'll read it through in its entirety. And then we'll go back and we'll break it down so we can understand the events that are set in motion as Passion Week began. Okay, everybody got that? So let's pray and then we'll dig into the scripture. Heavenly Father, thank you again for gathering us here this morning. Thank you for a beautiful day here in South Florida. Thank you for all these people. Thank you for the community that you're building here at Hammock Street. Lord, as we continue on this morning, help us to understand your word and to come to know you better. God, we thank you for this time. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, you're welcome to open it up to Mark chapter 1. 
If you don't have a Bible, of course, I'm going to put all the verses up here on the screen for you to read. I will go through them and then we'll kind of dig back in as we move along. So uh, Mark chapter, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 11, verse 1. I think I said 1. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Here's how it goes. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage, and to Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Verse 3. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Verse 4. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? Verse 6. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And finally, verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. Now, you might recognize some of those words. You're going to find out why in a few minutes. But now we're going to dig a little bit deeper. So this was Palm Sunday. And it was on that Palm Sunday that the people of God were overjoyed. Why were they overjoyed? They were overjoyed because their Savior had finally arrived. And they gathered as a crowd to welcome him to their city. Now, the people, the Jewish people, God's chosen people were thinking at long last the Savior for whom we've been waiting has finally come to set us free. Almost uniformly they lauded Jesus. They, they approved of Jesus. That's where we get the word applaud from. They lauded him. They're yay, Jesus is here. They did this for a time. But eventually anger would replace this wide-scale adulation. So now I want to take a closer look at the text so we can understand what's going on. So let's go back to Mark 11, verse 1. When they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage, and to Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus, Jesus sent two of his disciples. So here's what's going on. We see Jesus heading to Jerusalem, to the city of Jerusalem, to celebrate the Passover. Now remember, Jerusalem is in the south of what we know of as Israel. Jesus was from the Galilee region, so he was from the north. So they had to travel. Now, the temple was located in Jerusalem. And because of that, Jews from all over the region, but really all over the world, would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the holiday whenever they were able. So Jesus, throughout his life probably went to Jerusalem many, many times. But we know, because we know what happened later, this trip would be Jesus' last trip to Jerusalem. And it was in Jerusalem that the culmination of Jesus' ministry on earth would take place. And this last time, Jesus would arrive in town in a very specific fashion. So, Jesus began to set up the way he would arrive. He began to set up his arrival by sending those two disciples ahead. Now, which two disciples did Jesus send ahead? Anybody? Don't answer. It's a trick question. We don't know. Okay, we don't know. We just know it was two disciples. But he sent them ahead to make a special arrangement, which we read about in verses 2 and 4. Okay? So Jesus said to them, to these disciples, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it 
and bring it. Now we go to verse 4. And they went away and basically found exactly what Jesus said. They found a colt tied at a door inside in the, in the street and they untied it. Outside in the street and they untied it. So by the way, as a side note, if you're wondering, wow, was Jesus like a mind reader? How did he know? How did he know there would be a colt that was tied there? It's not as magical as that. It's not a supernatural prediction that he made. It's very clear from the text. He basically arranged for that to happen. So he told his disciples it would be there. He had kind of arranged for it to be there. So, so don't get too carried away with thinking that. You don't need to. Anyway, verse 5. Some of those who were standing said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told those people what Jesus had said. And the people said, oh, okay, go ahead and untie the colt. So what's going on here? Why is Jesus doing this? What is he up to? Well, Jesus was setting the scene for his final act of his earthly ministry. And even though the scene that Jesus was setting up seems kind of weird and kind of odd and kind of random, I mean, why did he need to find a, a donkey that was tied up? And what, what's that about? Actually, the scene that he was setting up was an answer to prayer for the Jewish people. They were praying for this for a very long time. And when they saw it happen, they knew what was going on. The Jews had been waiting for their Savior for about 2,000 years. And according to their oral tradition, and also the words of the law that were written by Moses about 1,400 years earlier... These words had revealed to them God's promise to Abraham that his progeny, the people that Abraham, the, the children and their children and so on and so forth, would become a great nation that would bless all of the earth. So Jewish people were waiting for the descendants of Abraham to come and bless all the earth and for the Messiah to show up. So in the ensuing years, God kept giving his people clues about who this Messiah would be, about the Messiah's identity. That said... The experience of the Jews up until that point had not been one of obvious blessing. In fact, the experience of the Jews up until that point for about 2,000 years had been one of unimaginable hardship. Then in the early 500s BC, we're talking about 500 years before Jesus still, the prophet Zechariah gave God's people, gave the Jewish people some clarity as to the way, as to the manner in which the Messiah would arrive in the holy city one day. And so from the book of the Old Testament prophet Zechariah, the Hebrew prophet Zechariah, read this. And this is really cool. This is from Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king, your Messiah is coming to you Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this is a prediction that Zechariah made about the coming of the Messiah 500 years before the Messiah showed up. That the Messiah would come, he would arrive in Jerusalem in a humble fashion, and he would be mounted on a donkey. Okay, so keep this prophecy in mind and we'll continue on in Mark. So let's turn now to Mark chapter 11 verse 7. And they brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on it. In other words, they put a saddle on it essentially, put blankets on it, and he sat on it. So for the Jewish people living in Rome or, live, or living in Jerusalem but under Roman occupation, seeing Jesus arrive exactly how Zechariah had promised was a welcome sign and was an unmistakable sign. They knew what they were seeing. And as far as they were concerned, it was about time. 
I mean, they'd been waiting over a thousand years, two thousand years. They couldn't wait for the Messiah to get there. They thought he has gotten here with not a moment to spare because the Jewish people had been oppressed for nearly their entire existence. During its long history, the history of Jerusalem, Jerusalem had been destroyed two times, besieged 23 times, attacked 52 times, and captured and recaptured 44 times. You think this is a stable place to be? You wouldn't want to invest in real estate in Jerusalem back then, I don't think. And since the Jews returned to Jerusalem in 538 B.C. from this Babylonian exile, if you remember your history, God's people had been living under the thumb of foreign occupiers. So when they got back to Jerusalem, foreign countries were running the place. Under the Persian Empire, which is the Iranians, and then later the Greek or the Hellenistic Empire, which succeeded the Iranians, the Iranians or the Persians, the temple served as the center of Jewish governance. Now, the leader of the temple was the Jewish high priest, the Kohen Gadol. So if you know somebody whose last name is Cohen, that's where you get that from. Kohen is the high priest. It's a high priest, so descended potentially of the high priest. So the temple is the center of governance for the Jewish people, and the temple priests, the high priests and the temple authorities, were, in effect, the day-to-day -day rulers of the Jewish community as long as they did what the Greeks wanted them to do. As long as the Jews kept paying a tribute, kept paying the tax to their imperial overlords, the Greeks, the Jews could pretty much run their own society. Well, in about the mid-100s still B.C., the Jewish people gained independence from the Hellenistic, from the Greek empire of Antiochus Epiphanes, that was the name of the Greek leader, following a revolt that was led by a royal Jewish family known as the Hasmoneans. This royal Jewish family was also known by their nickname, the Maccabees. And maybe you've heard of the Maccabees. Judah was their leader. Maccabee means hammer, so he was Judah the hammer. And it was during the rule of the Hasmoneans that the Jews the Jewish festival of Hanukkah was first instituted. By the way, the word Hanukkah in Hebrew means dedication. So this is a festival of dedication. It was the rededication of the temple that was defiled by the Greeks. Anyway, the Hasmoneans, so this is Jewish royalty, ruled for about 100 years until they were conquered by the Romans in 63 BC. So let's get our timeline right, okay? So we had the Hasmoneans or the Maccabees who ruled for about 100 years, then come along the Romans who start ruling in 63 BC. Now, Rome did what Rome does. Rome established peace. Rome established its presence, and it quickly abolished the Hasmonean dynasty, the Jewish monarchy, and began to rule Jerusalem, making use of the Jewish high priest and the temple, and then the local aristocracy surrounding the temple. So, this is what Rome liked to do. Rome would go in and they would sort of take over a place and take over a people, and then they would appoint collaborators, okay? They would appoint disloyal locals to serve them against their own people. So they would appoint, appoint collaborators from the, Roman, uh, from the Jewish population to rule on Rome's behalf. Now, how did the Romans choose a good collaborator? They followed the money. Isn't that interesting? See, Rome trusted wealthy families because Rome figured you're going to cooperate because you have a lot to lose. So it made perfect sense. You go to the rich people and you say, listen, you want to stay a rich person? You'll do what we tell you. Okay. So Rome gave these local wealthy collaborators a pretty free hand in ruling their own population 
as long as they remained loyal to the empire and as long as they collected and paid the annual tax to Rome. That explains why the Jewish people didn't care much for the tax collectors. That explains why Matthew, remember Matthew was a tax collector, that explains why they were so reviled because the tax collectors went around to their own people kind of roughing up their own people saying, hey, give us the tribute so we can pay our overlords. And the Jewish people said, what are you doing? You're, you're, you're paying the bad guys. Well, that's why the tax collectors weren't all that popular. Now, isn't it interesting how little things change? You can always find corruption if you follow the money. And that's exactly what was going on 2,000 years ago. Well, the Roman system worked pretty well in Jerusalem for roughly 30 years. But after 30 years, there were increasing numbers of Jewish people who would struggle. And then there were Jewish families that would fight each other. So these wealthy families were sort of jockeying for power. Each one wanted to be more powerful than the next. And Rome was thinking, you know what, we can't have this. There's too much unrest and our empire is too big to focus in one place. So we have to make a change. So that's what they did. In about 37 BC, so we're still talking before Jesus, Rome appointed a foreigner as the king of the Jews. All right. This foreigner was an Edomite. He was a Jamean, which basically means his family came from what we now know of as Jordan. So just near Israel, but not Israel. And the, his family had only recently converted to Judaism. By the way, the Jews did not favor converts, nor do they today. It's not a favored thing. The Jewish people are not looking to make more Jews. They don't favor converts. Anyway, this leader was named Herod, Herod the Great. By the way, doesn't this picture of Herod look a lot like the Green Goblin? Don't, anyway. So, now Herod the Great was an effective ruler and Herod the Great was also an accomplished builder, but he was also a ruthless despot. So in order to secure himself against all these power struggles early on in his reign, he ordered the execution of many of the traditional Jewish aristocracy. So essentially there was power struggles and they were pushing back against Rome. And he said, fine, I can take care of this. I'm just going to kill everybody who pushes back. And what he would do is he would kill one of the aristocrats who pushed back against Rome and he would replace them with a new aristocrat who had loyalty to him. So he's replacing them with loyalists. So once he does this, then Herod the Great goes after the laws of the temple. Okay? So even though, according to Jewish law, the high priest is appointed and then serves for life, Herod didn't want anybody serving for life because that gave them too much power. So he would, he would go through and limit the high priest's power. He, the, he would remove certain high priests and then appoint new high priests. So now you've got the Roman emperor getting rid of the Jewish high priest and appointing Jewish high priests himself. So Herod, listen to this, Herod would ultimately appoint and depose seven high priests during his 33-year reign. So essentially, just under every five years, Herod would turn over the high priest in the temple. That was against their tradition. He was used to, the Romans used to allow, the oppressors used to allow the Jews to rule themselves. Now Herod's saying, not quite. You're going to be ruled by somebody who's loyal to me. Now, Herod built 
an opulent temple complex. And the picture of the temple I showed you before was the rebuilt temple, the temple that Herod rebuilt. He sort of got into the temple and sort of added on to it and made it more luxurious and made it nicer and made it more grand. And he also built sort of a condominium development, a seaside condominium development on Judea's Mediterranean coast. Did you know that? That complex was called Caesarea Maritima. We're going to come back to that to just kind of remember that name. Now, Herod is remembered as Herod the Great. We've heard of him as Herod the Great, but he was also known as Herod the Monster. By the way, Herod the Great is the Herod from the birth narrative of Jesus. When we talk about King Herod in the birth narrative, this is Herod the Great. Okay? Now, when Herod the Great dies just after Jesus' birth, Rome gets divided into three parts to be ruled by each one of Herod's three sons. Now by 6 AD, so now we're after Jesus was born, due to the unrest that was going on in Rome as a result of all of the brothers fighting with each other, Rome had to remove one of them from power. He removed Herod Archelaus from power. Herod Archelaus was the son who ruled over Jerusalem and they assigned local rule directly to the temple and its leader. So okay, let's go back and make sure we got this. Herod was the ruler of Jerusalem. He ruled until about just after 6 AD, give or take. Herod dies. His three sons take over. One of the sons, Archelaus, is not doing a good job. They remove Archelaus and they give the power to the temple and its leaders. So they give the temple a lot of power. The temple has power not just over religious affairs of the people, but also over the economic affairs and also over the political affairs. So from that point on, the temple becomes very, very important. It becomes a collaborator, in fact, the chief collaborator with Rome. So the Jewish temple is now really on the side of the Romans, not the Jews. In other words, with this change, the Jews couldn't trust their own temple leadership anymore. They couldn't trust anymore that the temple leadership was acting in their best interest and not in Rome's. Now, the most powerful and longest serving high priest during this period, he served for 18 years, was a man who kept Rome's favor. And this high priest's name was, you've heard of it before if you've ever been to an Easter service, Caiaphas. Okay? Now, Caiaphas, the high priest who's loyal to Rome, under him, the temple grew even more powerful. And as the temple grew even more powerful, it grew under this cloak of theological legitimacy. In other words, the temple's growing, and he kept saying, oh, this is what God wants for the Jewish people, and the Jewish people didn't know any better, so they're kind of listening to it. And all this to say that as a result, as at Jesus' time, only the Roman occupiers and the traitorous religious leaders had a good life. They were the only ones who lived comfortably. The rest of the population was powerless. The rest of the population was oppressed. And that's why their expectations for the Savior were at an all-time high. Okay, so this brings us all back to Palm Sunday while we're here. On that Palm Sunday, it is safe to say that Jerusalem was a powder keg, that the tensions in the city were at a fever pitch. So Palm Sunday takes place at the beginning of the week of one of the most important festivals in the Jewish calendar. Now, by the way, remember the Jews start their week on Sunday. We start our week on Monday. They start their week on, on Sunday. So they were getting ready to celebrate the most important festival in the Jewish calendar, the festival of anybody Passover. 
Okay? Now, I'm very proud of our church because we know Passover well. We know Passover well for one reason, because we live in South Florida. And you can't help but see the Passover displays in Publix. You, they're just everywhere. By the way, we just got back from Los Angeles. Not as many Passover displays in Los Angeles. But second, we talk about Passover every time we serve the Lord's Supper. So we know a bit about Passover. Now, Passover was and Passover remains a celebration of liberation. Passover is a celebration of God's people being set free from life under an oppressive regime. Set free from slavery in Egypt. Now, in Jerusalem, during Jesus' day... When the large, oppressed Jewish population was getting ready to celebrate their major holiday, the theme of which was throwing off the shackles and the defeat of the oppressors and the escape to freedom, because that's what they're celebrating, it was logical for the oppressors to be a little bit nervous, right? I mean, they're oppressed people and they're celebrating freedom while they're being oppressed, it made sense for the Romans to remain on high alert. I mean, this is a good time for problems. So what happened was this. Their concern gave rise to a practice whereby Rome would show their power and authority over Judea. So what would happen is this. During the holidays, during all these Jewish holidays, the Roman governors of Judea would go to Jerusalem. The Romans would show up in Jerusalem and show their presence at these Jewish festivals just in case anybody's thinking about starting any trouble. It's almost like when you see the, the army doing the military exercises and the military doing military exercises in the South China Sea or in the Persian Gulf or whatever. It's a show of strength. It's a show to say, listen, don't mess with us. Okay, so that's what they were doing. And on Passover, this Roman show of strength was even more critical because so many people were coming to Jerusalem. On that Sunday, the governor of Judea was a Roman guy by the name of what? Pontius Pilate. So, on that Sunday, Pontius Pilate and his troops are responsible to reinforce their Roman soldiers that are permanently stationed in Jerusalem. Okay? So, on that Sunday, at the beginning of the week, Pilate comes up from his home in Caesarea Maritima. I just talked to you about that. That's the luxury condo complex over there in the Mediterranean Sea. That's the beautiful complex that King Herod built. That's where Pontius Pilate lived in a luxury apartment. Instead of having to live in the provincial, partisan, hostile city of Jerusalem. So he was in charge of Jerusalem. He just didn't have to live in Jerusalem. He got to live in the nice place and only showed up in Jerusalem when he had to. So when Pilate rode into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday, which by the way he was not thrilled about. He was not enthusiastic about going to Jerusalem. But when he rode in, he rode into town with the full power of the Roman Empire on display. So picture it if you can. I have that picture up there just to help. Picture cavalry on, or cavalry on horses. Don't mix those two words up. Foot soldiers in full armor. You've seen the movies. Men carrying swords and shields and bows and arrows. People carrying banners. People having those mounted poles with the golden eagles on them and the banners on them. This was all about Rome. And Pilate's entry, just imagine the sound of it. Imagine the smell of it. Imagine what it was like marching soldiers and creaking leather and horses and hoofbeats and bridles making noise and drums beating the cadence out. I mean, this was, this was an event. This was something that was really something to see. And because of it, the crowds are probably watching a bit fearful. 
And they probably were a bit quiet, just going, you know how when you're driving and you pull up to the red light and the police officer pulls behind you and his light isn't on, but you get real quiet and you got your hands at 10 and 2 and you keep looking up in the rear view like this, I'm doing, not doing it, and you're hoping you don't have any taillights out and stuff like that. That's probably what they were doing. They're probably getting very quiet going, and they're kind of solemnly watching Pontius Pilate and all these Roman troops arrive. Not only that, you know the Romans believed that the emperor was not just the emperor of Rome, but he was also the son of God. Did you know that? They believed that the Roman emperor was the son of God. So if you think about it, the Jewish people were forced to live under Rome's power, but also Rome's theology. They believed their emperor was the son of God. So Pilate's procession into the city embodied not only a rival social order, but a rival theology for God's people. So that's how Pilate came into the city on Palm Sunday. Now, on the other side of town, in direct opposition to, in direct contradiction of the Roman Empire, of the power of Rome and the theology of Rome, Jesus enters Jerusalem in a very different way. He doesn't show up with weapons and with an army and with armor and knives and drumbeats. He shows up peacefully and humbly riding on the back of a donkey and thereby doing what? Fulfilling the prophecy from Zechariah that we just read. And Jesus was welcomed into the city by a crowd of powerless social outcasts. That's when we get to verse 8. And many spread out their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches. By the way, that's where we get the name Palm Sunday, okay? Leafy branches. And was it just palm branches? Probably not but that's what we know it as, Palm Sunday, that they had cut from the fields. Do you think there were fields and fields of palm trees? Thinking no. Okay, so leafy branches are spread out. That's why we call it Palm Sunday. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. In other words, blessed is the coming of the, of the Messiah, Hosanna, in the highest. So those praises that they were singing to Jesus were not just random praises, but those praises came directly from one of the Psalms, came from Psalm 118. Psalm 118, this is the gate of the Lord, the righteous shall enter through it. By the way, Psalms are written about a thousand years before Jesus was born, 900, a thousand years. Look what's happening. The Lord is entering through a gate and the righteous one shall enter through it. Verse 21, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my what? My salvation. So they knew, King David, when he wrote this psalm, knew that the Messiah would come and the Messiah would ride through the gate and the Messiah would bring salvation. And in verse 26, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So the people knew exactly at this moment Messiah had arrived and God's people were sure that they would from this point on be forever happy and be forever unified in the name of the Messiah. That's what was going through their mind. That's what they were thinking. But was it true? Well, we know how the story worked out because unlike the powerless people Neither the religious leaders nor the ruling Romans were thrilled about Jesus showing up. They were not happy to see him, those in power. 
And John's gospel describes it this way in John chapter 11, verse 57. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees, those are the religious leaders, had given orders that if anyone knew where this Messiah was, they should let them know so that they could go and arrest him. So the leadership was not happy, but the people were praising his entry. So Jesus had indeed come to fulfill his destiny, and his people were singing his praises, but that wouldn't last. Things would go down quite differently than many of the people expected. And the people would become disillusioned. And this disillusionment would lead to denouncement and disownment and ultimately division. And they would remain divided. Because over the course of the next week, of that Passion Week, Jesus would encounter leaders and he would encounter crowds and he would say and do certain things that his followers expected him to do but he would also say and do things that they didn't expect. And his actions would anger a lot of people. And his actions would lead people to take sides. And his actions would, would cause people to test their commitment to God. And his actions would divide people. And for many people, their initial adulation would, would turn to uncertainty. And then to distrust. And then to denial. And then to fear. And then to rage. In just a few days' time, this crowd that had been unified and had been adoring and had been shouting Hosanna would become a divided crowd, an angry crowd, and they would demand that the Romans crucify him because they didn't yet know and they couldn't yet see that God had a plan for them, but that plan was very different than the plan that they were thinking about. And the results of that plan would impact them much more than they thought. It would impact much more than just their lives. They couldn't see it yet. But God wasn't just going to liberate them from their struggles. God was going to liberate all of his people from their lethal struggle with sin. But he would do so in a way that no one in the crowd expected. Their liberation would require the sacrifice of the very one the very person who had come to save them. The very person who had promised to set them free. The very person whom they lovingly, joyfully welcomed that Palm Sunday. But they would angrily condemn before the week was over. So as we wrap up this Palm Sunday and as we head into the Holy Week ahead, this is my prayer for all of us. That we may use this time over the next week to turn our attention away from our anger, whether it's against our political foes, or our enemies, or our friends, or our family who've harmed us, and we turn our attention to our God, who loved us enough to save us from our sin, and to save us to an eternity together with Him. Now, if you're not yet connected to our God, you can, you can get connected. You can go to him and pray in your heart and your mind. God, I'm a sinner. I'm broken. But I know you love me enough to send Jesus as my Savior. So I turn from my sin. And I accept what Jesus did for me on the cross by paying for that sin. And coming back from the dead. And I devote my life to him. And I promise to follow him with my life. If you do that, if you go to him in that way, you're connected to God again for eternity. As long as you've gone to him. Because God has promised an eternal life for everybody who is connected to him. To everybody who comes to him in this way. 
And it's for the people of God that this Holy Week began. Amen? So, I hope you can all come back on Friday. It's a big church week here. Friday at 7 o'clock here in our auditorium for Good Friday service. We've got a little something special for you, something we haven't done before. I think you will enjoy it. So come back and see us Friday at 7 o'clock. And then come back on Sunday, 9 o'clock in the morning or 1045 for our Easter services. We have invitations you can hand out. Don't forget those invitations. Keep on inviting people. If you walk past the prayer wall out there, say a prayer over what you put up there a few weeks ago. Keep them coming because we'd like to see this place full on Easter Sunday. You got it? Let me pray for you. God, we thank you for gathering us together this morning. We thank you for this opportunity to be a community of your people, that we can love each other, we can fellowship together, but also, God, that we can represent you in our area, here in South Florida. Because, God, we know that people need you desperately. And we know that you can change and transform us and bring us closer to you. So God, we thank you for this time. We ask for a blessing as we head out of here that you use us to build your kingdom and bring you glory. We love you, God. We praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name.